Hey everyone, this is Josh Itzo, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, this podcast is for you. Welcome to episode number 21 of the Fiduciary You podcast. My guest today is Chris Walters, who is founder and CEO of GradFin, which helps develop innovative solutions that address America's student debt crisis. Chris and his team have helped thousands of borrowers find savings on their student loans and stay in compliance with the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. He also has over 15 years of experience in federal tax law, including working for the U.S. Department of Treasury and the IRS. On today's episode, Chris and I discuss the current legislative environment as it relates to student loan debt, calls for further student loan forgiveness, especially from the more progressive part of the Democratic Party, the likelihood that federal student loan forbearance, the period that's set to expire on September 30th of this year, will be further extended, the impact of the SECURE Act 2.0 on student loans and retirement, the solutions they've created at GradFin to help clients deal with new student loans and refinancing, loan forgiveness, and even other areas like mortgages, car finance, credit cards, and even tax planning, as well as how they work with financial advisors and employers. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Fiduciary You podcast. Chris Walters, welcome to the Fiduciary You podcast. Thanks for being a guest today. Hi, Josh. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So this is a, a really a good topic to be talking about, you know, today with, with a lot of things that are happening in the student loan world and student loan debt and forgiveness and so on and so forth. And I'm excited to, to introduce you as, you know, CEO of GradFin, a company started, I think, in 2015. Maybe could you give a little bit of background about who you are and who GradFin is and how, how'd you come up with the idea? Yeah, Josh. So we started in 2015, exactly right. Prior to that, I had, you know, student loans from undergrad at Georgetown, grad school, Johns Hopkins, dealt with it firsthand. Took me about 14 years to repay my student loans. And then I bought my my first house, you know, right around that time period. So when thinking about GradFin and, and why we created it, it was really about how can we be a mechanism to help others deal with student loans, get the best advice, education, make sure that they're right, making the right decisions. Initially, when, when we came out with GradFin, we were, we were offering it as a benefit for corporations like law firms, corporations, hospital systems, education systems, and that, that worked really well. So we went in, did town halls, did you know education sessions, webinars, and really the, the, the whole idea was to get people, drive them to our one-on-one consultations and, and educate them. Employers thought it was a really good idea because, you know, they, you know, they're, they're coming out with different corporate benefits and, you know, they, they have the healthcare set, the retirement set, financial wellness, that that's been a really big driver over the past five years. So we're part of that picture. Actually in 20, I think around 2017, beginning of 2017, we, we found a really good opportunity with financial advisors and why they would appreciate our service. So they have clients just like us just like we do that that are looking to enhance their financial futures and you know as you're a young american you have student loans and 
And that could get in the way of other financial decisions you're making. So what we do with financial advisors and what, what we have been doing is, you know, giving them an opportunity to service their clients from a debt perspective. And then they're, they're going to help on, on the planning side of things. And, and we can wrap it all into a nice bow for their clients and, and really, really drive cash flow decisions there. So we really had a lot of success early on in the Philadelphia area with you know the the main mutual companies out there and so we decided that year actually to go national and and make make this a you know our top priority just bring in a, a lot more financial advisors and have had a lot of a ton of success partnering up with them you know maybe like doing presentations at residencies and in hospital systems or you know talking one-on-one with their clients but we're having a lot of fun. We have 27 employees now. We operate in Philadelphia, Boston, Washington, D.C. We, we just opened a, a West Coast office. So our range is nice. We loved it before the pandemic started because we could do a lot more traveling, get in front of people and, and that. But I'm excited today because we can talk a lot about, per your point, a lot's going on with student loans. Every time you open the newspaper, you, you're reading a different article. We can get into that, talk through what, where people's questions are. No, I think that's that's great. And and I think this will be a really interesting discussion. So I think that's a good lead in. There's there's a lot happening on the legislative front. I'm not sure anybody reads newspapers anymore, but certainly anytime you uh, you go online, you know, there's there's a lot happening. And I'd love to get kind of your perspective on what is happening on the legislative front. Can you share some of the you know, some of the the hot topics? I mean, we've seen everything from forgiveness that seems to be a big push especially the the progressive wing of the democratic party is really pushing president biden hard to you know i I think issue like an executive order that would wipe out a lot of debt you know in 2020 i think he had signaled that he would be open to potentially like ten thousand dollars but senator elizabeth warren you know i know and her and others have been pushing for you know fifty thousand dollars i've read that nearly 4.7 borrowers in default a million borrowers in default would have forgiveness under Biden's proposal, and it would be almost double that, or maybe a little more than double that with Warren's proposal. So can you talk a little bit about what's the landscape look like? What's happening? There's a lot of different initiatives. As you mentioned, there's a lot of different proposals. Can you help listeners understand what the landscape looks like? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we were talking right before we got on the podcast about how crazy of a year it's been. The past 13 months, we had a pandemic. We've we've had a shift in in power in Washington, where you had the Republican-led Senate, a Republican-led presidency, and that shifted in in January to total control with, with the Democratic Party. Every proposal that we've seen hasn't gone higher than fifty thousand. The Warren proposal was the most far-reaching. Actually, Bernie Sanders potentially would go further. But with regard to what we're hearing, is is that the Biden administration really is is the key here. The fact that they didn't bring it up in, in his speech, his his joint session of Congress, he did not bring up student loan cancellation, and he did not have it in his American economic package that he sent to Congress at the end of April, signals potentially that he's still unsure where, where they want to go, but they have vocally supported $10,000. They have not put that out beyond a campaign promise. So... He did ask his Department of Education Secretary, Miguel Cardona, to look into whether or not they have the executive authority 
to get forgiveness done up to $10,000. And the, the secretary is supposed to draft a memo indicating whether or not they have the executive authority. Of course, there might be some challenges to that if that comes out. And so whether that's constitutional, I think that was, I, I had read right. that that was, it seems like Biden is is wading very kind of cautiously into this. And one of those things with, is whether it's constitutional. I mean, do you, I know you're not an attorney, but do you think it's constitutional and how likely if the Secretary of Education comes back and says, you know, yes, you do have the authority, how likely do you think it will be that that certainly that $10,000 limit, they push for that? I think it's pretty likely he'd push for that if, if they said that he is the authority. But I do think that he's going to get some legal challenges from some some organizations on the right. But if you look at March, what he the Biden administration did, the Secretary of Education, they put forth at least two cancellation policies that impacted smaller populations. The first is the total and permanent disability population. If you have federal loans, makes it easier to get those loans canceled if you, if you can prove you have total and permanent disability. The second is the population if you went to a you know a school that defrauded you, one of those for-profit schools, and you, you're on that list of where the, the Department of Education says that you were defrauded, you now have the ability to, to cancel. Trump administration made it very difficult for that second population to get debt cancellation. Didn't he have like a for-profit school or some program or whatnot yeah. where, you know, some people got scammed. I think some people got scammed by his, maybe that's why, who knows? I, I have no comment on that, but, um, <laughs> but yes, now that the Biden administration, they're, they're making it very clear that they're supportive of debt cancellation. Those two haven't, you know, been really much of an issue and they, they haven't been challenged at all to my knowledge. So that seems very common sense to me. Exactly. I think to your point, they're worried about the, the defaulted borrowers, the ones that were in default prior to COVID and put lot, are more likely to be in default when the COVID forbearance period ends at the end of September. What should we be doing with that group? We also have a, a mid-April hearing in the Senate that Chair Elizabeth Warren held in the Senate Banking Committee. She talked about this issue being the biggest population that she's concerned about is the defaulted borrowers. You know, the people that are likely to come out of this on the wrong end that are trying to make their ends meet. So we're taking a look at that. But the bottom line, in my view, is if you have a high loan balance and if you're making really good money, you're in that higher income, higher earner group. You know, even if you do get a $10,000 handout, it's not much likely to make much of a dent in what you have. Right. And we'll talk a little bit about that because, you know, there actually is, there is strategy involved in this, depending upon, you know, what your kind of personal financial situation looks like and, and, and whatnot. So we'll talk a little bit about that. I know there's been some talk about that forbearance period that ends or expires September 30th about extending that. Do you think that is, uh, do you think that's likely to happen? They've extended it three times. But now that the economy is improving, we're starting to see mass vaccination rates across the country and we're starting to get out there. You know, it's it's clearly up to, to Congress and, and the president on what they're going to do. But all the signals we're seeing is that that's going to expire at the end of September. Okay. That rates, or I'm sorry, that you're going to start to 
if you have a federal loan, you're going to owe your payments again in, in October. What we would say to that is just be prepared to make your payment. Make sure that if you were in an income-driven plan prior to the CARES Act starting, make sure that you recertify your income prior to the end of September so that your income-driven plan starts. If you have clients that are concerned about what should I do when COVID forbearance ends, you know, definitely want to want to get a plan in place for them. And I'm, we're calling it the post-COVID period, right? We're actually probably going to get into this on PSLF as well. What does that mean for people? How's PSLF treatment going to change? So there's a lot more ramifications there, but we, we would also say, look, look at where rates are. We're still at all time lows for rates. If you're looking to refi, now's the time to do it because we're seeing two and a half to 3% from everything from a five to a 10 year for, for doctors, for middle market, you know, we're seeing definitely in a three, three and a half up to high 3% range. So these are rates we've never seen before. So if you, if your ultimate goal is refi, let's, let's talk. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. How are they doing when forbearance was that just with that, that kind of program, was that just payments didn't, you know, have to be made during the period? Are they, are those loans being re-amortized? I know like within the CARES Act and there was suspension of loan payments for anybody who had a 401k loan and what, what most of the, the large record keepers did come January is they simply, they, they re-amortized that loan over the, the remaining period. Is that how this forbearance period, or is it just that, is there any re-amortization or is it just, you have to start kind of your right. payments back up and, and does that push out the, that period where there was forbearance, does that push out and extend the life of the loan or is there a re-amortization? Yeah, it's sort of, it's a really good question. What they did with the interest rates, they put everything at zero during the, the start of the COVID forbearance until the okay. end of September. So it doesn't reamortize everything. If you did make a payment during this period, that would go directly to principal or to your accrued interest account and thus, you know, not anything new interest. So we're talking about, you know, kicking the can down the road if you didn't do anything during this this time period. It would not reamortize though, where you, unless you changed your repayment plan, for example, if you're in like the one of the IDR plans at the beginning, and then in September you decided to to get it into to a different repayment plan, that would reamortize everything. So, but you know, it was a good time, and like you know, we talked to a lot of financial advisors. What should people do during this time period when you have zero percent federal loans? Well. I think the number one thing is look at your look at your savings and look at your your other debts. Like for example, if you did did have a four hundred one k loan that was incurring interest during this time, that might be a debt to attack. Or obviously, credit cards that have those high interest rate loans. Right. So your your federal zero percent should be last priority. The top priority should be your top interest rate debts. And then you know, working with financial advisors, clearly use this time to save, to build up that nest egg, to get much higher savings because you're not going to get this time period back again. So definitely strategize. That makes a lot of sense. You had mentioned the PSLF, which stands for the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. I had read that in early May, a number of Democratic lawmakers signed and sent a letter to the U.S. Department of Education calling for reform with the PSLF. 
So can you educate listeners on what this program entails and, and what reform proposals are being put forth and why? Exactly. So public service loan forgiveness, it was passed originally in the Bush administration in 2007, and it was designed to encourage student loan borrowers that have federal loans to work at, you know, in, in nonprofit hospital systems or public school systems that are government entities or even the federal government. So, you know, it was great uh, on paper. The statute, in my view, reads pretty clear. But with regard to a lot of the mistakes that have happened since it went into law, they didn't figure out any of the mistakes until 2017, 10 years after the program, because you need 120 qualifying payments to get the full tax-free forgiveness. So the main issue they ran into starting in 2017 was the rejection rate was so high because what they found out is that these student loan borrowers thought that they were doing everything right, but it turned out that they were either in the wrong repayment plan, they didn't properly sign their employer certification forms, or and a lot of stuff that we're seeing is that the federal servicers may have made the mistakes. And I have a lot of examples there where there is miscounting of, of qualifying payments. You know, if you went from Navient, for example, over to Fed Loan Servicing, there's two servicers you have, and you know, the, the information didn't pass correctly. There was actually some servicers that don't exist anymore. This one called direct loan servicing from that went that you know was gobbled up by another servicer. So there's some some paperwork issues and, and missed payments. So a lot of challenges there. Also, this loan program called the Family or the Federal Family Education Loan Program originally, which was a private, you know, the private lenders owned loans and they were backed by the federal government. They weren't eligible for PSLF. A lot of the legacy borrowers, you know, teachers, doctors, people that they borrowed in the in the early to mid two thousands have these loans. They're not eligible at all. So you have to have direct federal loans to be eligible. So all these issues are piling up to a degree in which it's hair raising and you know very stressful for a lot of people that had thought they were going to get the forgiveness. So. We're at a point where we have a 97% rejection rate. And um, 97%? Exactly. Yeah. Oh and gosh. It's super high. So there's a lot of mistrust. But what we're telling people is look, I mean, this, th- this is a statute. It's another subsidy, just like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, where it was written into law. It's designed for a specific purpose. If you're doing everything right, we should be able to get you to the, the finish line. But We've got some seriously flawed issues, which I think was addressed in that letter. It was also addressed in Senator Warren's hearing. One of those issues is that federal family education loans. Maybe they can get them to qualify for this. Another is, and they they actually made some fixes during the Trump administration where they expanded the program by offering relief for borrowers that were in the wrong repayment plans. So they're starting to make some changes and so what we think is there's still some work to do. There's a lot of education that needs to, to happen. The, actually, this, the Massachusetts, there was a lawsuit there with borrowers from Massachusetts asking that the, that the servicers dig deeper on, on residents from Massachusetts. I don't know why they don't have that universally for, for every borrower, but right. that was something that to keep an eye out. We think, if anything, public service loan forgiveness is a great program. The laws will liberalize a little bit. The right people are, are taking notice. If you looked at what 
uh, Biden administration did. They just brought in Richard Cordray. He used to run the CFPB during the Obama administration. He's now at the Department of Education as, as the new FSA chair. And so that's something to keep an eye out. So we do think there's going to be a lot of liberalization of this stuff. It's not going to go backwards. We're not going to go in reverse. Like your people that are intended to get get into this program or should should get some good relief out of it. It sounds like it's a pretty complex program. Oh, it's it's super complex. And I think what we do, we, we recognize the complexity of it, recognize that there's could be some errors on the borrower side, but also on the on the government side. So we set up a program in which we review, we do an audit of all of your payments, all of your employment, make sure that everything is accurate. And if it's not, we're going to appeal that with the Department of Ed, bring it a step higher because we don't want these people to be unclear. Like we want this to be addressed now. If you're three years away from your forgiveness event and you have a lot of issues right now, spend the time now to clear it up so that, you know, you have more peace of mind that you're going to get the forgiveness. I'm very bullish of the program, but I have been for a while. There's some issues to clear up, but the big advantage is if people sit down, do a full review, request all their prior payment history, make sure that all their employment periods have been counted correctly, then you should be good to go. We have a really great success rate of clearing people's past, getting people's payments that they made in the past to get retroactively counted correctly. Our highest has been around 87 qualifying payments that we were able to redress. We've done a lot of forgivenesses. Our, you know, The highest that I've done is 336,000. A doctor from San Diego, imagine seeing 336,000 on your student loans mm. and a month later it's zero. I mean, it's just happy times for people that can get through it. That's so, life-changing. That's life-changing. It is. That's awesome. Well, let's talk a little bit about, about GradFin. So in looking at and and I'll just kind of run through and maybe you could walk maybe you could walk through these these various things and 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 what you're doing it it seems to me and what I know of Gradfin and, and hearing you talk is that part of your value add is helping to try to make the really complex simple and to you know it's it it can be overwhelming for borrowers to know all these complexities and the stakes are high if they if if they don't you know dot all the i's and cross all the t's so. You know, my sense is that's partly what you guys do is you help kind of navigate and guide them through a lot of those complexities and, and, and make it more simple and more turnkey in some ways. But you know, on your website, you do everything from loan refinancing to new student loans to forgiveness to mortgage to car finance, credit cards, even tax planning and prep. Can you talk a little bit about what the mission of GradFin is and what are the various ways that that you help you know, end user borrowers. And then also, you know, you had mentioned working with employers and financial advisors, maybe talk a little bit more about how you can partner in those ways. Yeah. My view of GradFin is is really the old school financial services approach where we're not like an internet company, right? Where you go, you log in and you have to type in a bunch of stuff and then, you know, out there's a behind the scenes algorithm and you know, you have to make a decision. It's you and the computer. So we're we're old school. We roll up our sleeves. Everybody that we talk to, we give that 30-minute initial consultation to. And we want to collect all your loan information prior to the call. And then during the call, I mean, we've hired really good people here. 
from banks and, you know, they worked at financial institutions and, and they're familiar with lending and, and interest rates and, and loans. So we want to understand your goals and how do they align with your financial advisor's goals? And, and we're very transparent. We want the financial advisor, if possible, to join the call so that they can hear, all right, here's status quo. If I have a $200,000 student loan and I did nothing, you know, it could potentially cost me $370,000 all in, 200 principal plus another 170 of interest. So here's option two is, you know, if I refinance that and, you know, bring my rates down and that strategy versus option three, which is maybe a different federal loan program, maybe PSLF is, is in the picture. So we want to run all your numbers, give that to you in a nice, easy to read, and also you know, have a conversation about it on the phone. And then, you know, you can go back to your advisor during your planning meeting or, you know, with your spouse and maybe parents are there and talk it through. I mean, here's my three options. What should I do? And then you can make a decision and, and we can, we're the point again, we're going to take you through the underwriting if you're going to do a refinance or we're going to, we're going to make sure that your forgiveness is going to work out for the people that are going to, going to do status quo. Just have to make sure you understand what the ramifications are. And is that the, the best choice? So it's all about numbers. It's all about talking it through and and then you know presenting it to them in easy to read format and having them make a decision. Student loans are bread and butter. It always will be. And it works real well with financial advisors because your bread and butter is planning and you know, investing and and you know, security and 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 insurance. And ours is how does debts you know, get in the way of that. Can we reduce your debts and, and can we have a better plan with your debts to, to optimize the planning side, the saving side? And so our goals are aligned in that respect where it's a complete financial picture. So we're, we're bringing that to the table in this industry. And the reason we want to do it one-on-one, we think people are a lot better to talk through student loans. We don't think there's a tech solution for student loans, it's too complex. There's too many alternatives. There's too many. Uh, it's highly regulated by the government. You got to know the ins and outs of every decision. People can come out of undergrad with eight to twelve different loan types, subsidized, unsubsidized, and then four private loans. You come out of grad school, you can have an, an additional twelve to fourteen loans. It's crazy. I mean, it gets complex, mm. and so. The way we set this up is we we have, you know, we're, we're going to import all of your student loan types, all of the rates, and then we have government options we can run for you. We have refinance options we can run for you, and you can compare and contrast, and then everybody's on the phone, everybody's on the same page and, and can read and take away what they want from it and then make a decision. Then we're starting to get into other products, other lending products like car refinancing. We started that last summer interest rates are super low right now. And did I take out a $25,000 loan two years ago that might've been 5%? Now I can get a 3%. So, you know, we have, we have a, a marketplace of banks for the car refi as well. We got into it on a little bit on credit cards. We have a good marketplace of a lot of, a lot of credit cards companies. The ones that we're doing the most of right now on credit cards is student credit cards and cashback and people that, that are trying to work on their credit. So what, what types of credit cards can you get? Can you get like one, some of those where you have to make a deposit into the 
you know, be prior to getting any credit. So, so the student credit cards is most likely to help these, maybe these undergrad students build credit history. Is that kind of the goal? Yeah. Yeah. Cause if you can come out of undergrad with higher than a 680 credit score and, and a good paying job, you'll be in a pretty good position to, to be able to maybe refinance your loan, your high interest rate, Sally May or discover loan. So get started on your credit while in school. It has to be, you know, don't, don't go to the bars every night and max out the credit card. And while you're, I never, I never did that, Chris. I never, I never did that when I was in college. (laughs) Exactly. I think you're speaking the truth now, but yeah, I mean, that, that's part of the, like get them in early, make sure that they, they can start understanding. All right. Credit score matters. Here's what you can do to, to work on it from an early point. Once you're out of school, let's start thinking about the cashback card because that's going to start earning you a lot more points and getting more more goods out of it. So not to speak too much on the credit card, but it it is a good, we like to talk to people and we like to talk about all their debts and to talk about what needs we can fill. So every single person we're talking about DTI. So, you know, what's your monthly car payment? What's your monthly credit card? Do you have any personal loans? Do you have, you know, what's your rent or your mortgage? When are you planning to buy a house? Like all that stuff is very, very meaningful to the student loan because we just want to make sure that that everyone's making the the correct decisions. You're not highly leveraging yourself on the student loan side and don't have, you know, the ability to purchase a house ever. Gets crazy. Yeah. And DTI, just for folks listening, right? Debt to income. So, you know, helping. And, and I would imagine this is why in some ways this, what you do tucks in so nicely to financial wellness, because that's, you know, the historical in the retirement industry, it was about education around the 401k plan and about investing and asset allocation and study after study shows that, you know, a huge number of Americans are financially stressed and, and you know, financial wellness and financial well-being are often used interchangeably. They, I think they're, they're different. I think financial wellness is more process driven. It's the steps you take to get financially healthy. Financial well-being is much more emotional. It's it's how you feel. And, you know, if you have very little net cash flow because you've got high student loans, you're much more likely to feel stressed, which is going to have an impact on your financial well-being. And so financial wellness has really moved into the realm of moving outside of, you know, investing in 401k within the retirement industry and much more around things like you know, spending and and saving and debt management and so on and so forth. And so it sounds like in a lot of ways, what you guys are trying to do is help optimize your clients to really optimize their cash flow situation so that they have more of a buffer, that they have, you know, emergency savings so they don't have to, you know, go into debt when the washing machine blows up or, you know, they need to replace the transmission in their car and really help them leverage and utilize debt as instead of a, an enemy, you know, obviously it'd be better if, if there was no debt, but, but help them optimize their debt structures so that they, they are in a position to use it to, you know, for their benefit and not to their detriment. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. I have a couple of examples too. So especially with a lot of the financial advisors that we're working with and their clients, they're getting into longer term notes because you can always prepay on those. There's no student loan or you know prepayment penalty in student loans, but you can also for a 20 year loan right now we can we can get under four percent for most borrowers we're looking at, 
And that's not too far away from a 15 year loan. It's probably like 25 basis points to 30 basis points. Might be a, a little more, but you know, if, if you're going to pay off a hundred thousand dollar loan in a 20 that you can save a hundred bucks a month. So, you know, think of it from a 300, 400,000 doctor loan. That's several hundred dollars a month that you can save. It's, you know, just by doing that 20 year, you can always decide later on, Hey, I want to pr- start prepaying this student loan a lot right. more, but cash flow is important. You don't want to sign up for a loan. That's a five year. It's going to cost, you know, 5,000 bucks a month when you don't need to right now to stretch. And you could always, I mean, it's a lot like a mortgage, right? You can, you can take out a 30 year mortgage and, you know, if you've got the cash flow or the buffer to do it, you could always synthesize that into a 15 year by making extra, you know, payments to principal every, you know, every month. But if you run into a month where you run into trouble, you know, you're not locked into that, that $5,000 a month payment. It gives you some flexibility. Yeah. And a lot a big popular mortgage product we have right now is the catch out mortgage where you can have currently maybe 300,000 left on your, on your mortgage, but you might have like $30,000 in credit card debt, but your house is worth 450 to 500 K because prices are going up, you know? And so you're, we're in an environment now where we can lock in a, a lower rate on your, on your mortgage than you took out like five years ago and take out some cash on that, pay off the, those 18% credit cards, and then still have a lot of room left, you know, to save. And, and, and your mor- monthly mortgage payment might be pretty similar to what it was prior to refinancing, but now all your credit card debt's gone. A lot of our financial advisors really like that strategy because it, it clears the bad debt away into like a low, very, very low debt that's backed by your the growing asset, asset of your house. We also have a physician mortgage where you can take out to 100% of the loan to value and you don't need a down payment if you're a resident right now. So you don't have to throw in like $20,000, $30,000 or however much it would be for that down payment but you can still make home ownership a very real thing as as a resident that's only making 60 or $65,000 for the next couple of years and start to build equity and, and start to check that off your list. And that's starting to come back in. The physician loans, you know, they're harder to get last year during COVID, but now they're starting to come back in and we have, we have some banks that can access that as well if, if uh, any of your financial advisors are interested in that strategy. That's great. So I, I want to talk about a couple of things. First, you know, you had mentioned you guys are old school, right? It's 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 not just a DIY solution where you know you get a you get a tech platform and you got to figure out a way to that may streamline the process, but it doesn't provide the intel or the guidance on what to do. And it sounds like just in listening listening to the some of the issues, the major issues with the PSLF. If you make mistakes, they could wind up being extremely detrimental, you know, long term. And so you guys and, and, you know, there's a lot of companies now that are kind of getting into this. You're starting to see with with the big 401k providers that are offering student debt solutions to plan sponsors and, and whatnot. Do you guys have kind of a tech platform as part of this that you use and and do you see most of your competitors are more kind of tech only as opposed to the tech plus human element? 
Yeah, so we we built some tech that enhances what our humans are doing. It's never going to replace what they're doing. I've just seen too many mistakes happen with the tech only play to really go down that route. So what we did, we, we built this thing called as GradFin Concierge. And so every one of our student loan borrowers, they log into GradFin Concierge and they can upload their student loans into that really quickly. So, you know, it, it'll capture all their interest rates, all their, all their payments. And then it also is a, a debt to income play because it, it can give us a soft credit pool so we can see if they're eligible to refinance with any of our banks, whether it's a personal loan or car refi or our bread and butter, the student loan, it, it gives us the ability to take a look at that. The other cool thing we're building is APIs into our banks. So we have APIs set up where at a click of a button, Gradfin can pull in their rates and it's a soft credit pool. So it doesn't hurt anyone. Everyone sees what your rates are. So you can make a decision prior to going in and getting that hard credit pool. So we can lay everything out. All right, Josh is eligible for a 3.79 20 year, which costs $1,000 a month. He's currently paying $1,300 on a 5.5%. Here's how much savings we're going to get for him. And we can do all that with a soft credit pool and API into our bank and get that done pretty efficiently. That enhances what our consultants are doing on the phone because it allows them to talk that through with the borrower on the phone. Here's your option. Option A is the $1,000 approach at 3.79. Option B is keeping your 5.3% loan, $1,300 a month. Here's what the savings is. And then what, what our consultants will do is we'll, we'll actually walk, if they're ready to go, we'll walk them through the underwriting. Here's what you need to submit. Here's your pay stub. Here's your proof of, of diploma. You know, maybe there's there's some bank account information that we need to set up and then go through the, the origination of the loan. So we've enhanced a lot of our technology, but it's all to support what our consultants are doing on the phone. We're never going to replace that 30 minute phone call just because there's too many mistakes people are making. This isn't like going out and buying $100 per week on, on your Amazon account, getting the delivery. It's really easy. I know what I'm doing. This is a $100,000 decision that could cost you tens of thousands of dollars if you make the wrong call. So we want to make sure that, that, that the numbers are correct and everybody's comfortable with your decision. No, that's great. That's great. So talk a little bit about the revenue model with all of this. How do you guys make money? How do you guys get paid? What, what does that look like? So we get paid by our banks. That's our primary revenue. That comes after each month. So we have the same amount with all of our banks. So it's about a point that we're making. So if we're doing a you know, $100,000 loan, Gradfin gets paid $1,000. We don't charge the client anything on the refi. They don't have any hidden costs, origination fee on that. So we're generally seen from our bank partners as marketing arm, where we are bringing in leads, qualified leads that are going to close on, on a new loan to save them money. And so that that's that's you know our our most significant revenue with regard to some of the partnerships we have you know we do have some corporate partners that are paying us to go out and and to provide a service to their employees so we're we're doing a little bit of that and then we do have a membership program at Gradfin which covers different discounts and different 
you know, the, our PSLF compliance program. So people sign up to get the membership, the one-on-one service, which is more than just a refi. It's, it's a, I, w- I want to make sure that everything is, is locked and loaded on my compliance for public service loan forgiveness. And then we also have enhan- enhancements, like you're going to get $500 off your closing cost of your mortgage if you're a member or, you know, $300 off of your refinance if you have a sidecar private student loan. So, so things like that. Makes sense. One of the things you also do that I saw as a, as a service is tax planning and prep. Can you talk a little bit about that? What, what does that entail and, and what's that look we had, like? We had a good first year doing that. It really was a pilot for us. The big need for, for student loan borrowers that are married is to see what your tax liability is going to be with be like if you're filing jointly versus separately, and then what your student loan liability is going to be like if you're filing jointly versus separately. So we dig into those numbers and you know we we work to to plan out because you know if if you do have a spouse that doesn't have student loans that's making a significant income, that could actually increase the amount that you're paying on your student loan. Because what the government does when they calculate how much you owe is they look at your your full tax return from the prior year. That could really drive up your student loan cost. So in, in those cases, people choose to file separately. But what we want to show them is if you're filing separately, what are you going to give up from the tax side? Are you going to are you going to owe a lot more to the IRS at that point because you're not able to take certain deductions that you otherwise would be if you're filing jointly? So we bought some tax software to do it and it it just runs those numbers so that they can be in a, a much more make that decision what what should i do because it could cost a lot of money by doing it through a, a, an accountant as well and the accountant doesn't always understand your student loan obligation like we do right that makes sense that makes sense you know you mentioned that you know advisors you've had a lot of successes you know you guys are kind of the the distribution arm, if you will, for for your banks and your lending partners. It sounds like advisors are kind of a good distribution model for you as well in terms of partnering with them. Can, can you just talk? And I know you had mentioned a, a little bit of what that process looks like, but you know, if advisors are are interested in partnering with with Gradfin, what does that look like? How does that work? What do they need to do? Yeah, so we're working with several thousand financial advisors right now that have signed up with Gradfin and, and are actively, you know, referring clients over and, and hopping on the phone with us with their clients. So if if you haven't started working with us, the process is, you know, I'll just go through the, the website process. You can go on our gradfin.com. There's a financial advisor tab at the top and you can contact us and, and George will give you a call and and go through our our services typically you know we'll have a call with the the advisor they're all they'll, they'll want to talk about some mock you know clients that they might have like hey here's scenario a i have a, a dentist from des moines iowa now making two hundred fifty thousand a year here's here's what his loans look like what would you guys do and so we we talk about the hypotheticals there and you know give them a rundown and then talk about option two i have a married couple one is student loans the other doesn't he's at works at a nonprofit hospital how would you handle that well we would go down the public service loan forgiveness route and here's how that that would work happy to do that but really it's all about like once we engage with your client 
It is, you know, just making sure we have the full loan details, your goals in mind as a financial advisor. And, you know, what have you talked about? And then getting on the phone, we set up the 30 minute calls. If it's a spouse call, it can be a, a full hour long because we'll go through each spouse's student loans. We're going to send them a report with the financial advisor CC'd at the end of the call. Usually it takes a few weeks, could take longer. We have a ton of people that are have held on their federal loans from refinancing them due to the COVID forbearance period. Because that's set to end at the end of September, we are setting up phone calls again this summer to run their rates to see if they want to move now, if it makes sense. But really, like we can work with advisors in different ways. Some of them never want to hop on the phone and like be a part of that conversation because we get it. You're really busy, but you want to know what the ultimate conversation was like. What is the report? What is that monthly payment going to look like moving forward? Others are very hand hands on. They like to know everything. They like to be on every single call, and they're part. Of, they're really part of that decision with their client. So it's really up to you. We can individualize it. Some other things that we've we've done successfully, and I talked about, alluded to this earlier in the call was we like to do presentations and especially, you know, when things open back up again, doing like a town hall or like a, a lunch presentation to a residency group. And that makes you, the financial advisor look good because you, they can present on their stuff for 10 minutes. We can present on ours for 10 minutes and then take 10 minutes of questions and have a really good dialogue with 10, 20, 30 residents in the room and medical professionals and educate them. And then you guys can work on, on the stuff, you know, the planning side and, and we'll work on the debt side. And right now we've been doing a ton of Zooms, a few per week with different groups and educating them, which has worked well. It's just, we'll never take the place of the in-person, but certainly we love doing that. It's, it's a really good way for a financial advisor to break the ice. I mean, you're going in and you're kind of running out of ideas where they don't always want to hear the pitch about disability insurance or about how can I sa- start saving? I'm going to make a lot, a lot of money in a few years. What should I be thinking about? They want to, they want to hear about student loans. They want a professional in there, an expert in there that can really eyeball what they're doing and, and give them some strategies. And that'll get you in the room a couple more times than you, you wouldn't have previously. So. That makes sense. Well, this has been a, a really informative discussion. I, I am not an expert on student loan debt. You clearly are. And, and it's been really helpful. I think listeners are going to get a lot out of it. So for people who are listening and if they're interested in learning more about GradFin or connecting with you, what's the best way for people to stay uh, stay in touch or get connected? Yeah, so I, I'm a big fan of our team. So we have a lot of great people on our team. If you're from the West Coast, we have Sarah Johnston. And she's out in the Los Angeles area and handles financial advisors west of uh, Denver. So Sarah Johnston is sarah.johnston at gradfin.com. And you can reach her. If, if you're on the East Coast, we have, we have plenty of people, including myself, that you can talk to. Of course, you can go on gradfin.com. That's probably the easiest. But I'm Chris Walters at cwalters at gradfin.com. And then George has been doing a ton. He's George at gradfin.com. We have a great team and look forward to meeting everyone. But thanks so much, Josh. I really appreciate getting in front of your audience. Hopefully 
they found it informative and you know this this can build something in the future so that we can all work together absolutely it's been great well thanks chris and uh, i'll make sure to put those names and, and contact information in the show notes and people will be able to, to stay connected with you guys and, and learn more if they're so inclined. Awesome. Thanks so much, Josh. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Chris Walters from GradFin. If you'd like more information and to learn more, please go to fiduciaryworks.com slash podcast. I've got some great resources there for you, including each episode along the show notes, articles, and free tools. And make sure to sign up on the site so we can stay connected. I'd love to help you stay in the know about what's happening in the world of corporate retirement plans. And if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show, or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Also, head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and Fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support this show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help other people find the show, and I read each one. Until next time, thanks again for listening to the Fiduciary You Podcast. Podcast.